are listening to Blackbird Nine's Breakfast Club. I'm your host, Frederick C. Blackburn. And tonight's second hour uh, episode is entitled Unit 8200, Where Are You? And we're going to be looking at the history of the telecommunications industry and how it became so weaponized and in the run-up to and the aftermath of 9-11, how all roads just seem to always lead back to Israel. And when you made that connection, it was game over for you for any type of professional career in the United States. And that's what happened to me. You know, when I first, in the run-up to 9-11, I was doing telecommunications training at the international level and consulting, and I was pursuing a political career at the time, and I had a very successful business, and had a home, had a farm, had my recording studios, my art studios, you know, I was living the dream, the country boy, you know, has done well, and I started noticing a pattern working with not only the telecommunication companies, the AT&T, the Verizon, the Sprints, uh, but also the manufacturing companies like Motorola, Cisco, Ericsson, and the intelligence community, the CIA, FBI, NSA, the State Bureau of Investigations, uh, military intelligence, those type of uh, systems, as well as the military contractor shadow firms like RAND, MITRE, General Dynamics, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, you know, those type of companies. And so basically I had, I was brought in by a company called Global Knowledge based out of Cary, North Carolina to help them develop a series of classes to be rolled out to the telecommunication companies and all those other groups I mentioned because we were trying to do what was called convergence. We were trying to take the old traditional telephone system, which is called a circuit switch network, and the new computer networks, which were called packet switch, packet switch networks, and merge them together into what we called a third generation communication network. And it was, you know, in doing this that I saw that there was something going on, that these companies are not following the laws on communication that we have established here in the United States. And when I, then 9-11 happened, and after a year of research, I traced, you know, day one, figured out the official story could not be true. So who had to be involved and all roads led to Israel. And when I made that jump and was, you know, talking about the illegal electronic surveillance, then I was blacklisted and, like many people of that time, uh, basically lost everything. So, um, you know, once we establish, though, that Israel was behind it, the question becomes, well, how 
much are they behind it? And that's where you eventually get around to not only learning about groups like the Mossad and their Sayanim, and for the newbies, what a Sayanim basically means is helper. And as a Jew, you are required to assist a Mossad operative if you are asked. So, that means, you know, giving your house up as a safe house, getting them medical attention. If you're a doctor, for example, providing medical care without reporting it to authorities, that type of thing. Uh, you know, you are required to help the Mossad. And that's what Sayanim are as helpers. And the Jews see this as a great honor. You know, if a Mossad agent shows up and says, I need you to steal a file from me from your company or, you know, do this. It's like, you know, wow, you know, I'm somebody I'll be noticed here because I'm helping the Mossad for, you know, the big agenda. And the more you study you know, Judaism and realize that, you know, it's an organized crime ring disguised as a religion. Uh, it makes more sense to you that especially when you see things like Murder Incorporated, the Stern Gang, the Ergen, the Purple Gang, all these, you know, organized Jewish crime rings were behind the foundation of Israel. And once Israel was established, instead of having the, you know, so-called, you know, crime bosses, the, the, the gangs all became the IDF and the Mossad. And overnight, the you know, Akosha Nostra, you know, the hidden hand becomes so, you know, the state intelligence agency. Uh, and some kind of that's supposed to be, uh, respectful, but they're doing the same thing they've always done. And that is, you know, bully, bribe, blackmail, banish, and bury. And, that's why they've been thrown out of 109 countries over 200 times since you know, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And, you know, we've talked about how the Jews, you know, coming into the 1800s were assimilating throughout the, you know, the new world and you know, modern Europe. And this, of course, upset the modern Maccabees, just like the original Maccabees, got upset when the Jews then were going over to Hellenistic Greek ways. And so that was what the Maccabee Wars were about. Well, this was the same kind of thing where suddenly you've got this push in Judaism to, you know, reestablish Israel, uh, be, turn Israel into this international power structure that's going to rule the world from Israel and seek revenge on Rome or white Europeans that they blamed for destroying the temple to begin with. And so I always say, you know, in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, that war never ended. And that's what uh, non-Jews have to understand, especially white non-Jews, is that war never ended. And they want you eliminate it because of their new world order plans. And part of that is white genocide. And now they're bold about saying it. So, how does the telecommunication industry fit into that model? And so when we go back and think about how did all this start, it's still amazing to me that I can sit here in the mountains of North Carolina and speak into a microphone and have that go out over a computer network and have people all over the world 
listening to me with a very small amount of latency, a very small amount of delay, that is still mind-boggling to me. That you know, It's just amazing that we can do this show every week with this technology. And this is still really new. When we think about how long our history is, how did the modern telecommunication industry spring up? And so we think in 1820, Hans Christian Orsted discovered electric currents that would create a magnetic field. And that was huge. The, you know, the connection between controlling electricity, but then realizing that when electricity flows, it creates a magnetic field. And then in 1824, William Sturgeon invented the first electromagnet, the idea of you could take a wire and wrap it around a core of iron like a nail and pass that electric current through it and create a magnetic field strong enough to pick up magnet uh, pick up iron objects and that was the first electromagnet in 1824 in 1830 US scientist Joseph Henry used multiple turns of wire to improve upon the electromagnet and that design was basically what Samuel Morris used in 19 excuse me 1837 when he invented the first electric telegraph system. And the telegraph system was basically a battery and a set of wires and a switch that you could turn on and off that would create a magnetic pull on another uh, bar or another telegraph key to make a click-clack sound. And Morse uh, created the Morse code, which was short clicks and long clicks to do the alphabet and the numbers. And yeah, that was 1837 when that first functional telegraph system was invented. And you think how huge that was, that, you know, communications was measured in days, weeks, months Many battles were lost because messengers didn't get through with their letters. And, you know, if letters were intercepted, then your enemy would understand your uh, battle plans or whatever. And so the idea of encoding your messages. Um, and we all know the story of the you know, Illuminati messenger who was struck by lightning on his horse. And that's how the Bavarian government found out about the Illuminati plants and that, you know, they actually had the materials there. And uh, so that idea of having to encrypt information in case it falls into the enemy's hands, etc. But, you know, couriers and things like that took so long and suddenly you had this new system using electricity and magnetism to do almost instantaneous communication across vast stretches of territory. In 1958, on August 16th, the first communication transatlantic cable was laid between the you know North America and Europe. 
And that allowed for a communication that would normally take 10 days to get from the United States to Europe by ship to 17 hours to get through all the relay stations uh, to get repeated on. Because the way the telegraph system worked was it was uh, you're basically limited by your cable length because uh, the resistance as you get, you know, further down a cable, the more resistance you have. It's called the resistivity of the cable. And so uh, at some point, the current's not strong enough to push the magnet on or the electromagnet on the other side. So you had limited distances. But then you would just have another leg of the telegraph system and you would repeat the message on it. And then the next operator would repeat it forward. And so it was a series of repeaters uh centered around the length constraints of the cable. Um, but, yeah, that was huge in you know, 1858 that the first communication transatlantic cable was laid. In 1860, there was an experiment with couriers called the Pony Express in the United States, and it was basically from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California, and it was way too have a series of relays with fresh riders and uh, fresh horses where the horsemen would ride as fast as they could, get to the next location, hand off the packages, and then the fresh rider and a fresh horse would take over. And that model uh, operated for about 18 months, but they were driven out of business when the first transcontinental telegraph was completed between Omaha, Nebraska, and Carson City, Nevada, via Salt Lake City, Utah. So in 1861, that was when the first transcontinental telegraph was completed. So you think, you know, 1861, suddenly the dynamics of communication completely changed from a communique taking days or weeks to real time. And that power shift or that, you know, shift in technology changed all the game rules everywhere, especially in business, investing and military uh, and organized crime, of course. And so in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell was afforded the first patent on the telephone. And here, instead of just having a series of electromagnets making clicks and clacks for Morse code with a microphone and a speaker, people were now able to talk real time over these communication wires. Uh, In 1885, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T, was founded. That would become Ma Bell, and it started out as a uh, standalone company and then started acquiring all the small locals so that it built up this huge monopoly of communications. And for the longest time, no one dared touch AT&T. They were just... The federal government made some very strict guidelines on the limits that are the game rules basically AT&T had to play, especially when it came to running rural service because AT&T wanted to really cherry pick where they put their lines in 
of to maximize profit because again this was all about you know profit driven uh, systems but the government said no you have to make this available to all Americans so even if you're going into the mountains of North Carolina you have to charge them the same rates as somebody in the cities and it has to be reliable and that's where the famous 99.999% or the 59 reliabilities came in where you know, when you picked up those old telephones, they worked. Uh, it was just a very reliable, very bulletproof system. The engineering that was coming out of AT&T, you know, it can't be touched because they were going for this high-quality, uh, stable model that was, you know, uh, seen as military compliance standards almost. I mean, that was kind of the mindset. Then uh, in 1894, Marconi sent the first successful wireless telephony uh, telegraph system based on Rudolf Hertz radio wave theory. And you know, re- he did his work in 1888. Uh, in 1894, you know, Marconi made that a reality. So the idea of having a wireless telegraph using radio waves. And yeah, that was not that long ago. Then it's interesting that as all of this rapid shifting of communications was going on, that's when you got the huge push for the Jewish state. So it was in 1896 that Theodore Herzl writes the Jewish state and 1897 when the first Zionist Congress convened in Switzerland. And, you know, these were part of their concerns that if they did not act now, then they would never be able to defeat these clever Europeans. And that's part of the thing is just we have to slow this rate of change down and we have to become the masters of all of this science and all this technology. And so that was the other thing that you started seeing was the Jews moving from their ghettos and their own standalone systems suddenly pushing their way into Gentile society and you know, demanding entrance into things like universities and engineering schools, etc. And the gullible goyim allowed them in, thinking that they weren't the enemy. They're a fellow American, for example, or a fellow German or a fellow Russian or a fellow Brit. But the reality is that they have always been looking out for Jewish interests and see you as the enemy. And one of the biggest things I always see when I look at the history of telecommunications is what my grandma would always say about locks. And she would always say a lock is for an honest person, meaning that, you know, if you lock something and an honest person comes by and sees it's locked, they're going to say, I don't need to go in there, you know, or else I would have a key. Uh, a dishonest person is going to find a way past that, lock to get to whatever's behind it and not have any qualms about it. And when you read the things like the Talmud and the uh, 
the Kabbalah and the Zohar and the sacred magic of Abram Allen the Mage, one of the themes that just keeps coming back into play is, you know, whatever the Jew wills, they will do. And it's kind of like the Crowley line of do what thou will shall be the whole of the law, where you don't limit yourself by any sense of morality. You do whatever you think you need to do and don't let anyone or anything get in your way, especially a lock or a Gentile law like the Fourth Amendment, uh, which supposedly protects our personal communications. Well, the Jews don't respect that. That's not part of their legal system. It's not part of the Talmud. That's Gentile law, and they feel it doesn't apply to them. And as we see the rise of this Jewish power in the telecommunications country, you really see that the great experiment with that idea of having a society, an independent society of self-rule for the people, by the people, uh, where everybody has these natural God-given rights, such as the right to privacy, the right to free speech, the right to assembly, the Jews don't see that. They think that they have the right to do anything they want as long as they don't get caught. And if they do get caught, then you get you know, there's anything to get you out of it, whether you did it or not. Uh, and if you do get convicted, it's to get you out of there before you have to serve your time. Uh, and so it's just a total disrespect for any Gentile law. And that's part of the reason they always get thrown out is they have no respect for the law of the land other than their own, which is basically I'm Jewish. I can do whatever I want dealing with Gentiles. I only have to obey the rules when I'm dealing with fellow Jews. Um, and so when we look at the rise to this new technology, and with every technology, of course, the Jews immediately think, how can we subvert this? And so with communications, you always think, you know, you have two parts of any communication. You have a sender and a receiver. Well, one of the simplest things to do is to disrupt it, to shut it down so that the receiver doesn't get the message that the sender sent. So uh, you would have lines being sabotaged so that communications can't get through. So the idea of cutting down telephone poles, etc., to put your enemy in communication blackout while you attack, for example, and that way they can't you know, call for reinforcements. And that's one of these tactics we see today. Anytime police are going to, or military are going to attack an area, first thing they do is try to jam all the signals, disrupt communications, shut down all communications so you're completely isolated. The target is isolated, can't call for backup, can't say what's going on, can't bear fair witness to what's going on. And uh, that's why it's so important that we always have backup systems so that if one gets shut down, you know, you can get the communique out any means necessary. And that's why we talk about sneaker net all the time at Breakfast Club is, you know, getting the message through any way possible. And then so 
also as governments see the rise of these new technologies, the first thing they're going to do is, of course, fear them and try to control them. So in 1934, the U.S. Communication Act was passed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and this created the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, which was a federal agency that was tasked with protecting the public infrastructure and the public airwaves of the telephone system, the telegraph system, and the radio systems to say, we've got a fixed number of bandwidths for like AM and, you know, at the time everything was either shortwave or AM. But, you know, so everybody, you know, you have to get a license and that uh, license tells you how strong your transmitter can be, which tells you how much range you can have and what frequency you have to be at so you don't overlap with somebody else's transmitter in the next county over or the next state over, etc. And so that was part of the FCC to protect the public infrastructure. And that is so key, especially with the um, KC, KSCO story this weekend and last week with Miss Georgia Peach and the owner who really has adopted that very Jewish mindset of if I own the station, then I control the content. And even though it's going over public airwaves, that's the idea of I own the hardware, therefore I dictate the content. And that flies in the face of what the original public infrastructures were supposed to be about with these new uh, internet technologies, which they are trying to bring under Jewish control and control what is said on them. And you, know, you would never uh, deny somebody uh, the ability to you know, send a letter based on what's in the letter or the type of handwriting they used or the wording they used. You know, AT&T couldn't refuse somebody phone service because they didn't like their politics. That's not how it worked. But today with things like YouTube and Twitter, these Jews have positioned themselves in power to say, we have community standards and we will censor you if you break our community standards. And that's the same thing I'm seeing with papers like the Watauga Democrat, where in their comments they have their little, you know, you have to meet our community standards to post anything. And anything that we find objectionable, we will, you know, edit or censor. But we're within our rights to do that because we control the community standards because it's our newspaper and our website. So, um, so that was, you know, 1934 when the, the Federal Communications Agency started. In 1952, the NSA or the National Security Agency was formed by President Truman and it was done by a top secret uh, executive order, and that's where the NSA got the uh, name No Such Agency because for the longest time it was denied that it even existed. Now, this is only four years after Israel was established, and you think, you know, Israel was established by criminal gangs using terrorist methods uh, and both in Palestine and in the United States and in England and all the other countries to 
use non-cooperative game theory to force their agenda. And you know, we've talked before about how many bomb threats and letter bombs that Jewish interests like the JDL were sending to Truman uh, to force him to acknowledge Israel and then, you know, the bribe once he did. And that was, you know, the carrot and the stick, uh, of that Jewish model. And so, you know, four years after Israel's established, we get the NSA. And one of the things about the NSA is there's always been Jewish control of that agency. And that's because, you know, the whole thing just flies in the face of everything that the Constitutional Republic stands for, but the way they sold it was that the NSA would always be spying on everybody else, you know, but not on Americans. And uh, we find that that has not the case, and it's never been the case. And as we'll see, you know, all these people that were putting together the NSA at the same time were putting together these groups in Israel and coordinating between Jews in Israel, Jews in America, Jews in uh, England, Jews in Germany, etc., in this whole international Zionist movement. So just going back to you know the development of the telecommunications, in 83 is when you first had what we'd consider the first first-generation analog cell phones. Then 1984, AT&T Monopoly was broken up into what they called Seven Baby Bells Company. And that was huge because you you had this big monopoly broken up into small pieces by the government, which many people think that Google and YouTube and things like Facebook should face the same antitrust laws because they are an abusive monopoly. Um, And... Then in 1987 is when we had the demise of the Fairness Doctrine in the United States. And from 1949 to 1987, all broadcast media, you had to give equal time to differing opinions. And that flies in the face of that Jewish Bolshevik you know, Zionist model that says, no, you have one story that comes down from on top and everybody just repeats it. Uh, you don't have discussion. There is no other version than our version. And so when the fairness doctrine was uh, done away with in 1987, that really set a bad precedent in the United States, which led to a lot of the problems we're having with the media being bought up by one demographic group, Jews, and used as a propaganda apparatus for asymmetrical warfare. You know, they are using the media against the population of the United States to further their own agenda at the detriment of everyone else. In 1994 was when you got the Communication Assistance for Law Enforcement Act And this was done, of course, under the guise of making law enforcement more effective in fighting the war on drugs. And if you remember, that was the big thing coming out of the Reagan administration was the war on drugs. We were going to fight the war on drugs. But to do so, we have to 
modify all communication equipment to allow backdoor access for law enforcement. And they called this remote maintenance so that you could get backdoor into all of those servers, routers, and switches. And supposedly law enforcement would only do this if they had a warrant as per the Fourth Amendment and per the FISA courts. Well, Again, locks are for honest people. So what we saw in the run-up to 9-11 is all of these Israeli and Jewish fifth colonists in the United States that were, ex- that were in the telecommunication industry that were exploiting the weaknesses to assist Israeli operatives on the ground laying the groundwork for 9-11 and running drugs, especially ecstasy. And in the Carl Cameron Fox News report, they talk about this, that how every time the DEA would start to close in on these you know, Israeli drug dealers, they would completely change their routines or they would shut down and disappear. And it's because the DEA themselves was being monitored by these Israeli gangs. Then in 1996, the Telecommunication Act of 96 rewrote the 1934 Communication Act, and this brought the Internet and the cable companies under FCC jurisdiction. And a side note, was also in 96, a little company by the name of Quest Communications was formed out in the Midwest, because remember in 1984, AT&T was broken up, so now you could have independent phone companies, and one was called Quest, and it served the Midwestern states. That became huge after 9-11, because of all the companies... That, you know, your AT&Ts, your Sprints, your Verizons, we found out that they all were going along with the NSA illegal electronic surveillance programs without any paperwork, any warrants being issued, just freely giving access to all their data traffic. Quest was the only company that refused to do so. Now, in, of course, 2001, we had September 11th, the Israeli attack, the United States. October 26th, we got the Patriot Act. Now, the Patriot Act that was passed and nobody got to read it (laughs) had huge sections on communication law. Now, one of the big changes was up until this point, you could get a warrant for electronic surveillance in the United States provided you addressed everything in the Fourth Amendment giving probable cause of the things to be searched and what to expect to find. Okay? If the warrant was issued, law enforcement working with the telecommunication companies could do two types of electronic surveillance. They could do a trap and trace and a pen register. Now, a trap and trace is basically who is calling the number in question. So, let's say somebody said, I was doing something wrong here, reported me to law enforcement, a judge issued a warrant. 
what they could do with a trap and trace is to monitor my phone calls to see who was calling me. Or they could do a pen register and say, who is the number in question calling? In other words, who am I calling? What numbers am I calling? But at no time were you allowed to do any eavesdropping of the actual conversation. That was protected First Amendment speech. So you could say who I was talking to, but you could not record the conversation. That's just a Hollywood thing. Um, the Patriot Act, under these new converged networks, where you had packets now with a packet destination and a packet uh origin, you know, the source and destination, the you know, you had the source address and destination addresses. But for the first time they were going into the payload, looking at the actual conversations. So this is one of the biggest upsets in the telecommunication world. And this was one of the things I was uh, really pushing before I got blacklisted, especially with the NSA, trying to explain to them what the Fourth Amendment was, what the FISA court's definition was, and when they're doing their tracing of these packets, what pen and trace meant with these new packets, meaning basically these are the addresses you can get. This is the source, here's the destination, and that's what pen and trace means in these next generations. But all of their gear was already ramped up like a sniffer. And if you're not familiar with a sniffer, is a sniffer is a computer analyzing device you put on a network that scoops up every packet on that, for example, Ethernet network or old school token ring network, but now Ethernet. And you could... uh do all kinds of uh, modeling and filtering to see, well, I just want to look at uh, video traffic or audio traffic or uh, uh, text-type traffics. Or you could say, you know, what uh, regions are this coming from? What company is this coming from? And so there were all types of things you could look for with a sniffer on these networks. Well, that was the same technology that they were using to scoop up everything. Um, now, one year before 9-11, in March of 1999, General Michael Hayden was put in charge of the director of the NSA. Now, I always call him Michael Fourth Amendment Hayden. And I was already there doing training and seeing that these NSA students were being very confused by what I was telling them because they were told that they can you know, basically do intelligence you know, gathering on anybody, anywhere, anytime. And what the Fourth Amendment and the FISA means is they just can't use what they find in a court of law, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to send their information to the military so that these targets could be taken out. And so when I was explaining what the NSA could do on the U.S. soil, it was very confusing to them. I was told by my uh, handler to stop 
talking about it, I actually had to remove my uh, modules on communication law, and then finally I was just blacklisted altogether uh, in 2003 in the run-up to uh, the invasion of Iraq. But Michael Hayden was there. Now, the key thing about where I was was that I developed all these classes and after 9-11 happened, not one change was requested by the NSA, the CIA, FBI, any of the telcos. So it was just business as usual. And this was what the guy from Quest was saying when he was arrested was that all of the surveillance started up months before 9-11. So in uh, 2005, um, if you remember, the Quest CEO, Joseph Nichio, was sued by the U.S. Securities Commission for un ethical trading or you know basically exchange fraud and he kept saying that he had been railroaded then in 2006 mark klein from at&t discloses that there was an israeli naris unit an sta 6400 optical splitter in the at&t room 641a and the only people that were allowed into that communication room were people with NSA clearance. Now, that was huge because that NARIS unit, and NARIS is Latin for to know, that was a state-of-the-art piece of optical splitting equipment where by the time the signals get to the NARIS, they've already been converted from electrical signals into optical signals. And then, then a technique called uh, dual multifrequency uh, was used to basically multiplex lots of fiber optic system, signals on a single strand of fiber. Well, what a NARIS system does is literally uses mirrors to make a copy of those light signals without degrading the signal itself. And that's why they're so undetectable compared to other surveillance systems that when you put it in line or you try to split a signal off, you would immediately see a drop in power levels or impedance mismatch or these other things. But with the NAR systems, they put them in and it's transparent because it's just making a light copy Uh and that was the kind of technology that was coming out of Israel. And it's like, why, you know, is this company developing this kind of equipment? And why is it in a phone, locked phone room for the NSA in an AT&T office after, actually before and after 9-11? And that was Mark Klein who went public with that. And... On the that's when the USA Today broke the story of millions of call records being turned over to the NSA by AT&T, Verizon, Bell South, but not Quest. And at that point, General Michael Hayden went out there and went into damage control mode to try to sell to the American people 
a juice-splained version of the Fourth Amendment saying it was a reasonable clause in the Fourth Amendment. And, of course, 9-11 gave us reasonable cause to look at every packet. It did, but the statute was upon probable cause. It was not a reasonable statute, but he was out there trying to sell that immediately in 2006 because everything was falling apart. It was being exposed. Um, in August of 17th of 2006, U.S. District Judge Anna Diggs Taylor ruled that the government's domestic eavesdropping program is unconstitutional and ordered it to be stopped immediately. However, the Bush administration, and of course they were surrounded by all the neocon Jews from Project for a New American Century, they immediately appealed it and it was turned over, it was overturned by the appeals court. Okay, and of course, you know, she suffered greatly for that ruling. Um, it was during this time that Quest CEO Joseph Nachio stated that the appeals documents, uh, or stated in the appeals document that this program that the NSA was requesting Quest participate in, and they refused unless they did the proper FISA paperwork, was happening six months before 9/11. And so he was saying that in February of 20 February 27 February 27th of 2001 is when the NSA was requesting all of this information. So that has always been my hypothesis based on what I've seen was this system was in place before 9-11 and was working fine as designed and we didn't have to touch it after 9-11 because it was working the way they wanted it to and only one telecommunication company stood up to them and they went after him big time with this security fraud uh, exchange bogus charges. And um, in 2009, he, uh, Joseph Nachio, started serving a six-year sentence in federal prison. And you know that they didn't send him to a summer camp. Uh, and he was finally released in September 20th, 2013, but the biggest testimony against him came from a guy named David Weinstein, who had uh, ties to Goldman Sachs. And he was basically the one who made the case against him to send him to prison for not going along with the Jewish agenda. Uh, and of course, in 2013, Edward Snowden confirmed what I'd been saying all those years, that behind the NSA backbone the back door of the NSA equipment was another back door to Israel. And so that's what we now know that the, you know, AT and or the telephone communication infrastructure in the United States is being just vacuumed up by the NSA and then a huge pipe to Israel where all of these, uh, military units like, uh, Talpiot and unit 8200 are coordinating with the Israeli companies, telecommunication companies, to basically uh, carry out massive uh, electronic surveillance at full spectrum of the United States, from stealing industrial circuits to setting people up for blackmail type thing, uh, 
and you know as you go through the videos in the playlist you see that a lot of uh unit 8200 people have come forward and blown the whistle on what they're doing and it's you know these are the kind of things it's gangland tactics uh it's absolutely ruthless it's and there are no they don't obey any laws and it's all about taking out their enemies any way possible and the i guess if there is a bright side to the quest story after you know his company had been destroyed and sold uh, for pennies on the share to CenturyLink he had to go to prison but in 2016 Joseph Nichio uh sued and was awarded 14 million US dollars um because of the lawsuit, you know, they're basically going back and saying that he was innocent the whole time and sued basically the people that set him up. So, and he actually won that case and uh, was awarded a $14 million settlement. But, you know, you can't get that uh, time back. So, you know, we started looking at this and uh, every road kept going back to Israel and the IDF and the Mossad, and then you find out that in 1952 is when Unit 8200 was established, and when they first started, they basically just had a bunch of surplus American phone equipment that was out of date, but now it's one of the uh, most high-tech intelligence units on the planet, uh, the amount of resource they have. And then in 1979, uh, Operation Talpiot was started as an elite Israeli Defense Force IDF program to train high-tech warriors at Hebrew University. Um, and this was started by Professor Felix Dothan and Professor Shal Yatziv, uh, who submitted the uh, idea to Israeli Chief of Staff Raphael Eaton, who was part of Bibi Netanyahu's Likudniks. And the whole idea behind Talpiot and Unit 8200 was basically to have next-generation warfare, 4G warfare, and to dominate the new electronic media. They wanted to basically be able to go into any piece of electronic gear anywhere and be able to hack it, you know, either turn it off, eavesdrop on it, put bogus information out there. And this is some of the thing trickery we were seeing on 9-11. Remember all the bogus 9-11 phone calls that were physically impossible? Things like voice synthesis. One of the things I could, I would demonstrate in my classes was, using voice synthesis, which is what, you know, your coder decoders or codecs do, analog to digital converters, is basically take the analog signal and sample it. And everybody has a particular uh, template to their voice patterns. Uh, it's as unique as your fingerprint. But I could basically have one of my students uh, talk into my computer we would do a template overlay of the timbre of their voice 
and then I could speak over the speakers in a very close approximation of their voice in real time. And so this idea of spoofing the audio in real time, collected in real time, uh, eavesdropping without being noticed, uh, all of these things were seeing Talpiot and Unit 8200 doing and training and then sending their people into all these other countries to go in and basically dominate these various industries. And so this is full warfare. It's economic business warfare. But when you're looking at you know, what war is about attaining power and control, these are the new battlefields is to take over the technology. So as somebody develops something, uh, you have these Israelis spying, seeing the technology, seeing an application for it, and figuring out how to steal it while driving that particular country out of business. Uh, for example, you know, just whatever it takes to, you know, eliminate the competition, and they feel totally justified in doing this. And anytime anybody tries to stand up to them in the United States, they have so much power, that person is, you know, shout it down. Uh, and we just see how many whistleblowers have come forth. And as long as you're saying the U.S. government is doing it, then you'll get media time. But the second you start making the next connection over to, but it's the Israeli influence behind it, then suddenly you get the treatment and they come at you sideways. For example, setting you up for bogus stock fraud exchanges, that type of thing. Or for like for me, just blacklisting me. Um, but you know, this is what we're up against that, you know, the Israeli, as small of a country as it is, and as, you know, they use that money that we send them and think of all the money we send to the Federal Reserve, uh, via IRS taxes, you know, all that money is going to these Jewish interest groups to f- finance, equip, and train these people and give them the capital to uh, wage fourth generation warfare against all the old non-Jewish business infrastructures, you know, be it telecommunications, you know, uh, any industry. They want full spectrum dominance, and that's their catchphrase for it. You know, when you go back and read the Project for a New American Century papers, it's all about full spectrum dominance, and they're playing this zero-sum game. Uh, it's a master-slave system, and they really think that just like you know the communist model is the communists always say you know we're one murder short of utopia you know it's you know this time we'll finally get it to work they will never acknowledge that their system is flawed they just always think that they can control everything with just a more technology uh and a little bit more crime and just eliminating a few more of those uppity Amalek that are getting in their way. But you know, they're eventually gonna have their Pax Judaica and it's gonna be paradise once they finally dominate the world and get rid of all these white people. And the biggest battlefield they have is the new technology of these global communication networks. You know, you think they have completely controlled uh, 
the U.S. media, both entertainment and communications. Uh, how many really prominent Gentiles still own any major telecommunication companies in the United States or in the world? And if they do own them, do they really own them, or are they just the front person for uh, you know Jewish bankster money? And the other aspect of this is, you know, in Jewish law, Jews will charge goyim interest on money, compound interest. That's usury. But to other Jews, they will loan the money and, you know, it's either interest-free or a lot of times they will just forgive the debt and then write it off somehow. And we saw time and time again in the run-up to 9-11, especially people like um, uh, Derek Suter and the Urban Moving Systems, that suddenly he got this quarter-million-dollar loan out of nowhere and didn't have to pay it back. And you see that pattern where you know, some you know, shell corporation or NGO will just make a massive donation or that massive loan to somebody and the loan is never paid back. And that's how they manipulate the books uh, to move this money around. And, yeah, they're moving money around like pieces on a chessboard. But, you know, this is all strategic, all to uh, conquer all technologies so that they... And only they can control the infrastructure and the message. And that's their uh, mo- you know, the motivation and also you know, just their worldview. And they just really feel justified in this. But you know, people are definitely waking up to it and uh, are pushing back. And so I'm hoping that we're going to see a push towards... Uh, some massive uh, communication law changes, especially things like antitrust laws breaking up these big monopolies like Google, like Facebook, uh, because they are not looking after the public interest. And uh, that's part that needs to get put back is that these communication companies, your communication infrastructure is a public utility. Uh, rather than a private monopoly and that, you know, we have to be able to protect the free speech on whatever medium we develop, uh, be it telegraph, be it letters, be it interactive video, but you know, that needs to be protective and people have to stand up to it and start calling these Israeli uh, so, you know, cyber soldiers out because they are basically terrorists and are uh, attacking country after country for Jewish interest at the detriment of everyone else. So with that said, uh, I'd like to thank everyone for coming out to the Trading Post this evening. I hope everyone has a wonderful week. And until next time, I will see you all at the rendezvous. <laughs> Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? 
For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other health.